uh, it's just a list, you see. So the first is Panchakanda, means the five aggregates, and then you've got Rupa, form, Vedana, feeling, Sanya, perception, Sankara, formations, activations, Vijnana, consciousness, and then you've got what are called the, the sense spheres, Ayatana, which is um, 12 sense spheres, which means the eye organ and then the rupa, the object of the eye, the ear organ, and the object of the ear organ, the sound. So it goes through each of the sense spaces plus, plus the respective material, you might say. So body and touch and um, mano, measuring mind and dhammas, that which can be measured, conceivables. Then you have what the atta is, what's that, 18? Mm, the tara, so it's 18, isn't it? 18 elements, which is this, this goes through the same six sense bases, but it calls them, in a sense, properties or elements. Um, so it's just a different way of analyzing experience. So the eye has got this sense; it's a knowable, it's a, it's a, it's an apprehendable, rupa shape and eye consciousness. And so the, through all of the senses. So these, um, and then what are called the indriyas, which is um, the sense bases, indriyas, authorities, powers those which exercise, which lead the mind or lead the citta in any particular moment. They lead the citta. So you have the eye and then the ear or and then it could be femininity, that aspect comes up or masculinity or life force, um, pleasure, pain, happiness, sadness, equanimity, the five spiritual indriyas, and then the realization indriyas, ananya tanyasa indriya. I will come to know that which is not yet known. Uh, indriya, the, the quality of knowing, anyata indriya, the realization I have realized, I have completely realized. So this refers to the faculty of the arahant. Four Noble Truths, and then dependent origination in its arising and ceasing aspects, of which is much there. Ignorance, avijja, sankara, same word again. Activations, mental formations, formative tendencies, programs, consciousness, nama rupa, name and shape. Um, means an object plus all the all of all the aspects that designate what that is perception feeling uh, intent volition contact attention they're the ones that give you a handle on it salayatana the six sense spheres passa contact impression vedana feeling tanha craving or thirst Upadana, fixation, clinging, bawa, becoming, jati, birth, 
Jaramaranang, aging and death. Soka Paridewa Dukkha Dhammanasupayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. This is the arising of this whole mass, aggregate, conglomerate of Dukkha. And then it goes, there is the ceasing of it through the Avijatavira Sisa Viraga, that's dispassionate, Viraga, um, complete Asisa. So it's the complete, full, dispassionate ceasing of ignorance. There is the ceasing of these other factors, they subside, they, they do not arise. So that's a ad hoc um, translation. Just go through some other uh, bits, questions, perhaps on a more theoretical level. Oh. The Majima Nikaya 115, section 15, the Buddha says, It's impossible for a woman to be an accomplished one, a fully enlightened one, or a wheel turning monarch or Saka, or Mara or Brahma, Saka's the king of the um, Tawatinksa Devaloka. Mara, head nasty, chief enemy, demon. Brahma, sublime um, deity. As a woman, this felt diminishing to read. Love to hear your thoughts on this. And what this understanding has to do with the path to awakening? Um, well, I mean, to be succinct, very little to do with the path to awakening. Except, of course, you know, one can feel, if you're female, you can feel kind of like, well, you know. So that's not a very agreeable experience to, to uh, work through. But um, a couple of points. First of all, this, these suttas occur in various versions and the exploration and the story of these suttas is that they are um, swept, re- you know, recollections and collections have been swept together of what the Buddha had said. So there's many thousands of them. And so, the, you know, the once tradition has it, Ananda remembered all these, uh, which most people feel, no, it's a ten, that's rather, a, you know, because some of them, you know, they're just lists and lists and lists of saying the same old thing with one word different. Um, so, there's, so there's a sense in which there is the, what you might say, the more the traditional and uh, uh, legendary um, understanding or way of holding these scriptures and then the more analytical, scholastic way of really trying to see how these uh, texts came into being. So, and then these, these texts receive considerable veneration because as you read them, they contain some incredibly subtle and powerful 
illuminating insights that you think, wow, where did this lot come from? You know, it's not like anything anywhere else. It's really staggering. You feel this comes from somewhere pretty, pretty deep. So it's considerable veneration and these have been recited over thousands of years. So there's a whole feeling of these are, you know, up there, sacred. Um, well, that, that both gives them tremendous weight, but it also tends to make them iconic, which means they're just revered uh, and um, require have a kind of iconic quality to them, you know, rather than just informative. Um, with some analysis, it seems that these suttas were gathered over a couple of hundred years or so. Um, uh, and obviously the Buddha just spoke. He didn't write things down, he just spoke. And then people remembered what they could of what he had said. And Ananda probably did remember a huge amount, because it is possible to remember all this long. You know, some monks memorize the entire Tripitaka, which is staggering, and can they can do it. And it seems in those in that day when there were age when there was no other form, written stuff, that people did have vast powers of memory. So probably a lot was remembered, a huge amount was remembered. But then putting them into these, we have books, that, that's not the way it was. Um, and so looking at what we have, you realize the, the understanding is these have all been gradually you know, collected and, and sorted and, and put into particular categories. And I think the earliest one was probably the Sangyutta collected. Sangyutta Nikaya is often much less, they're much more like cryptic. They're little stories or sometimes just about a particular aspect. Whereas the, the later ones were things like the Majima, the middle length, where you've got something a bit more perfectly composed less epigrammatic. So exactly when these were put together, nobody really knows, but probably, you know, within 150 years of the Buddha's death, these were all being gathered together. You can imagine a a forest-dwelling community scattered over a chunk of India trying to get something together. Um, So what the, 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 the short piece is that you can't say that everything in those suttas is exactly what the Buddha said. So, if, but if you look at where he's saying the same thing over and over again, you think, well, he must have said that. Well, it's just one remark. You go, well, maybe. But when you get it said five times in different collections, you think, yeah, he definitely said that. If it's pertinent to awakening, he said that. And there are other versions. The version we have is the Pali version. So it seems in this very early era, the... Uh, Buddha didn't speak Pali, it's been a constructed language, particularly in order to encapsulate these texts. And so the, the original Buddhists didn't, didn't use it. They used a particular form of dialect. And then when they tried to, thought, well, let's get this a bit more polished, they would put it into Sanskrit. Some put it into Sanskrit, and some created Pali. This is a very formative age, and then it, these various recensions went off in different directions. And some got translated into, uh, in, put into Sanskrit, and all those got 
destroyed in India when the Islamic invasion took over, but they were taken into China and up into Central Asia. So they gradually dug them up. And they found that many of these Sanskrit editions seem to be rather earlier than the Pali ones. Some of the Pali ones are earlier, some of the Sanskrit ones are earlier. And um, this particular piece, when they look at the Sanskrit version of this suit, it doesn't have this in it. This bit about the, uh, the impossibility of a woman being these things, it doesn't appear. So this only appears in the Pali version. So the, under, the assumption is that this has been added somewhat later um, because it bears no particular relevance. And it's more likely that um, this is something that's very much in the mould of the Indian society, which is quite strongly delineated male-female. And you never have religious leaders, well, would never be female. King would, you don't have queens, you have kings, so it's quite that set up is like that so um, that's the understanding it's something that seems to be more to do with the Indian way of the world view around um, male and female rather than something that's actually um, related to awakening probably not even what the Buddha said and so there's quite a few of those um, things you can find when you, if you, I wouldn't really recommend it, but if you, people do spend considerable portion of their life just digging into these texts and comparing them and coming up. So I'm, but, uh, so when look at that. Frankly, I wouldn't recommend anyone becoming a Buddha, at least from the, the uh, uh, early understanding of what the word Buddha means. It means someone when all the teachings of the Buddha have died out, completely gone, disappeared, somebody arises who figures the whole thing out for themselves, on their own, with no teacher. Yeah, you want it? <laughs> so, yeah, you both say, well, it's tough enough when you've got all the teachings and teachers, <laughs> it's still hard work. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it, so... Uh, so the the, uh, so the, the uh, Theravada view, particularly as Arahant, is more more. That's that's a lot of work. <laughs> but be a Buddha is just like you know you've got to wait for quite a long time until all this is finished, and get born. How many how long it takes before this lot dies out, which might be quite a while, and then start again from scratch. Yeah. So it's not. It's not really a, a thing to wish for <laughs> in in this particular use of the word Buddha. It doesn't mean awakened one. It means someone of completely awakened by themselves who can also, um, you know, present it to others in a in a particular form. They haven't just got realization; they've got the capacity to create a system to explain it to other people. I wouldn't hang around. <laughs> More colloquially, people tend to use Buddha as being, you know, an awakened being. But the more classical rendition of that word is got specific um, um, uniqueness to it. 
Specific reason for chanting mantra nine times. Why nine? Because it's three threes. And so three is um, Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And so these have these again are sort of... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three is considered auspicious, and three threes is, is so it's the highest number you can go before you have to start again. You know, after that, you go at one zero. Yeah, so you'd go down to zero again, and then you go up to nine again. So it's the highest number you can do. So um, that those recitations, if you don't do that nine times, you could do 108 times, which I don't think. We've got the throats for. Okay, let's more practical um, points. Dealing with perception. Even when perception is seen clearly, the jitta can often still go into wanting or not, biased based on that perception. So something can be done in regard to perception to keep the jitta from doing that. Or is it simply to notice that jitter has gone into wanting or not wanting, return to centre and clearly knowing where the jitter had just gone was not for my well-being? Can you say more about perceptions of time and particular ways of practising release the jitter from their grip? So I think with to, to with perception you because um, it's so it's so built in it's so immediate um, in flash you get something um, and to realize what you get is not the reality it's just just a, a, a caricature or and very much tainted by one's biases, ingrained whether how they've been established through one's actions or through one's social indoctrination. But their perceptions are um, just angles, subjective biases. So, uh, and then so they can't really give you anything substantially fulfilling in themselves. To see, to know that, you examine or investigate the results of clinging to them. And uh, what happens to the jitta when it clings to them? It becomes biased, subjective, uh, narrow, neurotic, mm, unable to constantly in conflict with um, a reality that is not happening according to one's subjective biases. So this is one way one just reviews the suffering of perception and how it flashes up with no reason behind it. It's not deliberately generated, it's just reflexively generated. So when that happens, you know, hey, what's this? We should know, what's this? Where's this coming from? Coming from not knowing, because you don't see it, it just flashes up. So you want to at least flag it as deceptive. And then you can you can counteract 
perceptions with their opposites, the perception of the attractive you can counteract by placing the perception of the unattractive, the perception of, um, and then perception of impermanence. So recognizing, you know, seeing how things change. So you can challenge one set of perceptions with another. Uh, but, but one doesn't do that unless you, you do recognize the nature of perception is just a, um, a distortion. It's not there's nothing there, but we see things through twisted lenses, distorted lenses. Perceptions of time. <clears throat> well, when you experience time, it's not a neutral medium. We have clocks with numbers on them. They're pretty neutral. Um, but um, that isn't time. That's just enumeration, isn't it? You know, the clock is not in a hurry. It's just generating numbers impartially, neutrally. That's not time. That's just enumeration. It's there to provide common um, consent around events, really. But that, that's not time. <laughs> we say it's time. We say, what's the time? It's seven. That's just a number. So what time means as a direct experience is a certain degree of pressure. I mean, minimal pressure, got plenty of time. Or no time, not enough time. Or time on my hands. Time on your hands? You got numbers on your hands? No, it means sitting there feeling bored, waiting. Time's heavy. Pregnant time. How do they get pregnant? (laughs) It means something's about to pop, so we've got a feeling of pressure building up. So there's a direct experience, um, pressure. So when you perceive time, what do you experience? What do you directly experience? You experience, you might experience becoming, which is there's this and that and this and that and this and that and I'm aiming. It's a sense of rolling on, rolling on, generating a, a virtual world, a conceptual world to roll on into. That's called becoming. And it's supported through perceptions such as Friday, New Year, Christmas, Father's birthday, you say these words and boom, time appears. Uh, But where is it? It's generated through these perceptions. And how how true are they? They have some. Particularly when we get around to numbers, we can say we could all agree upon seven till the clocks change. And then we'd say it's eight. (laughs) How did that happen? We might all agree it's going to be Friday, but actually, what do you think Friday will be? Is a reality. What mood will you be in? What will the weather be like? Hmm? What will happen? Just an empty name, just an empty number in itself. But it carries the sense of, I will be. I will be. What will I be? How will I be? What can I be? What should I be? And so, what's it doing? It's the pressure of what? Anxiety? 
uh, uncertainty because we're dealing with a reality that's got no substance to it. It has pressure, it has its pressure, but we don't know what Friday is. You can't because all you know is it's not now, unless the day is Friday, of course. So, so you've got this sense of pressure to arrive at something that you can't know. Yeah. Isn't that suffering? Because you, you can't get your hand on it, and yet there's a tremendous urge to do so. That's, that's huh? dukkha. Now if we, the past, if it's past, how come you remember it? What do you remember? When it remembers something pops up, what, in the past? No, we call it, roughly speaking, the present. Mm. And when did the present become the past? When did the past become the present? What is present anyway? What is past? Well, we really, these are just, when, where's, the, where's the line between, that's the edge of the present, and there's this, the past begins. <laughs> and this is the present, it goes on for three milliseconds, then there's the future. It's ridiculous. There's no lines <laughs> there on that. That spectrum is purely an empty convention that is useful for organization. But in terms of direct experience, it re- passes what? Stuff that's still got some intensity, pleasant, unpleasant, still echoing, still got some intensity. So the mind can. You know, this cycling of the sankhara, of this formative tendencies, trying to generate a field of becoming. So it's looking for what was, what will be, and it's picking up elements that still carry resonances, sankharas, resonances, and it lights them up. Pleasant ones or unpleasant ones, lights them up. But if you ever try to testify to it you're probably going to recognize your memory is not accurate and in in, in explorations of these things the function of memory apparently it's been proven to some degree that every time you remember something you distort it so it's like a pulpy tomato when you pick it up, if you pick it up, it gets more and more mashed and more and more distorted. <laughs> Till you've got just pulp, you know, oozing. All it carries is just this kind of poignancy. Poignant, that's all you've got left. It's just that, and that's the sankara, that's the, the panging of pleasure, pain, regret, guilt, anticipation. It's, that's that's what it is. That's what time is. It's just this panging in, in the heart and that that gets projected out as yesterday and tomorrow using a language that refers to, to something that's purely a virtual reality that helps to organize people. And that clock time really only became manageable well, maybe a hundred years ago 
because there was, or even relevant, because if you're living in in uh, Canada, who cares what time it is in Kansas? Because we're completely separate. But now it matters because you get these linkages. So you can have a different time in Canada. I mean, you can have a different time in different parts of England. Liverpool have a different time from London because there's nowhere synchronizing it. You couldn't get from one to the other fast enough to check. <laughs> so they might be, you know, 10 minutes later or half an hour later or another day. <laughs> so it's really a function of organizing human beings into neat packets. <laughs> is what it's about as a convention, but as a, as a direct reality, it's about the pressure of sankharas and becoming. How do you release yourself from it? You deal with the, the exactly with the emotional pressure of it. You deal with it, so forget it's tomorrow, yesterday, just notice this is the quality of regret or quality of nostalgia or the quality of expectation or the quality of dread and that's what you need to work with and so the more you can access this it doesn't forget present past future forget that 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 for direct practice just notice this is this quality it's a sankara it's an activating experience and if it's you want to know who is created in this? Um, who is the being who has created this? The one who's lost something, needs to be something, trying to find something, hoping to be something, hmm? measuring themselves in terms of sankharas, measuring an ent- creating an entity out of the field of becoming. Suffering. Can this very emotional tenor, this emotional resonance, be held mindfully to unpick the pang, resolve it, release it dispassionately, compassionately. And that's that's kind of what we do. It's and then the concept of time becomes a hindrance because you're thinking, but that was last year. No, it wasn't. It's now. It's this. It's happening now. Jitter doesn't know time. It's a purely a construction. Jitter doesn't know time. It just knows various degrees of pressure, panging, delight, comfort and release. And naturally our practice is to, to apprehend the uncomfortable, the unresolved, the poignant, the panging in a compassionate way and discharge what is there. Then this is called timeless, akalik or the hallmark of Dhamma. Forget time, timeless. I'm getting the experience, the sense that all people are objects of my perception that really is no quote-unquote other. Is this what your teaching is pointing to? 
Unfortunately, this experience didn't last. Any suggestions how to keep this sense alive, how to cultivate it? Mm. Well, we have perceptions called self and other, or, um, and these are all. Both these perceptions are are um, formations in the chitta. If the chitta formations through apprehending particular data, sights, sounds, and the emotional tenor. So self, what do we call myself? That with a sense of uh, relevance, resonance, ringing, panging, you know, uh, that which moves and is experienced subjectively. And in terms of pleasure or pain, uh, it's experienced rather like that. And with that quality of, of, a way of activated sensitivity, this is me. And then there's a clinging around that in order to make it more steady, more comfortable, get rid of its pain, or defend it. So the arising around particular activations, and then the perception, this is me, and then they're clinging, and then that activations to try to improve or protect or advance that notion. That so this very looking at this very quality of assuming selfhood is called a sankara. It's ahankara. Um, so you know, there's a thought, there's a there's a mood, there's an intentionality. Yep. And what gives it the particular intensity, this ahankara, this sense of this is me? This is myself, this is me, this is my mind, my thought, my emotion. Uh, it's an it's a absolutely normal experience. And yet yeah. Well, well, to whom does it belong? A body? What is it? What does it belong to? What, where is it? In its uh, the exploration, which I'm sure you've heard many times, is you can't find that, and yet this so it's this sense of a particular view with a certain proclivity to it keeps naming it and and wrapping it up. This sight, this sound, this emotion, this thought. This is the me bit. And other things outside that are not me. So self involves both saying what is mine and also saying, well, that's nothing to do with me. That's that's the other. That that's that activation. It, right? But you you know, if you just look directly, you know, the sight of this floor is happening here. The thought in my mind is happening here. I look at this person, this image is happening here. Right? And then the perceptions or whatever I want to call her, that's happening here. Then I can look at this, give this a name, that's happening here. And then a thought might come up and that's happening here. <laughs> and there's all this stuff meshing around. This is the cosmos. And you can't, well, on direct experience, you can't really draw a line as to what's mine and what's not mine. Um, 
Now, I think, you know, just if you said to this room, you're all perceptions in my mind, they probably would have some, dis- you'd probably get some pushback on that. Say, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a perception in your mind. I'm me. <laughs> so it's not, it's not quite the case that there are no other people. <laughs> it's just the case that <laughs> our experience is our experience of other people our perceptions, our impressions of other people. And uh, one of the, uh, it could be marvelous, and it could be confusing, is when you meet some of these others, you realize, oh, she's not like that. She's this. Oh, oh, he's like that, rather than this. You know? uh, and so if one's open to it. But of course, if we're really locked, we don't even really see the other person as they are. We just say, I've decided you're that, and that's all I'm going to notice, and I'll keep blotting out any qualities that don't fit into my, my prejudgment. I will, not, I will not notice, and you can do that. Mine can do that. Yeah. And it comes up in particular intensities of that. Yeah. And the intensities are generally around uh, being accepted. So, have I been a problem for him? I think I have. I think I asked this question. He probably, probably, it's a stupid question. I've probably been a nuisance. You know, that, yeah. I turned up late for the interview. Oh God, you know, failure. I, I've kept people waiting. You know, my interview, I went on too long. I was getting excited, feeling quite happy. I didn't notice that we'd gone on for 40 minutes or people waiting. <gasps> Other people waiting, you know, with all their built in malice and hatred and <laughs> I've offended them and crushed them and hurt them. And you look outside the door, they didn't, they'd forgotten to turn up. <laughs> or they were just sitting there musing, looking at the happily meditating. But, you know, we, so we can create these phantom beings out of our sense of what is it, you know, the the our, the 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 perception. So, what is the perception based upon of other? That's yeah. not to say there are no other people, but you see, some of these particular critical points, other people become fear beings or desire beings, of course, or beings we have views about. Or beings we imagine have views about us. And this stuff flashes up perceptually very intensely. Mm. And that's the one you want to know about. Um, and the beauty of it is that the real people can help you <laughs> dislodge some of these ghosts from your mind. <laughs> Even the need to have ghosts in your mind. So I certainly myself, I notice whenever I assume other people, I'm very careful with that. I try to be as careful as I can about what what I make out of that. It's so, you know, it's so sensitive to not having been what they wanted, you know. It's so sensitive to that 
not having been that which was fulfilling for them. I think, oh God, whoever is fulfilling for anybody? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, what's the chances of that? But they're, you know, they're, they want to be so sensitive to these impossible standards. And, you know, people can roll and flex and you know, change and and you know you're not the only feature in their landscape that so should be so you know this projection experience onto others is something to be very careful about very careful about yeah. and these these retreat situations are extremely challenging for that yeah. because the advice is you know if you've got a, a strong perception about those but you want to go and check it out with them say look have i have i done something have i been a problem for you let me know talk about it and well I'll do better and then you can't do that so you just got to look at that sense of she's probably feeling really annoyed with me but she's not saying anything <laughs> and you see this stuff well up as you as you probably recognize on retreats and you, think, well, you know if it wells up if it wells up as a perception you can be sure it's not true how how because how how can you be so crystal clear about another person, we haven't even asked them, <laughs> and we look feel the emotional intensities in that. And truly, you know, there's there's a sense of well, I won't say anxiety, but it's it's nervy, isn't it? If you look very the very base, the very beginning of the experience of others, are nervy because you don't know. But you know it's important because you know you could be offending them. They might be in, all kinds of things could come one's way. So there should be a sort of sense of a well, how is that? And that's fine because with that you, you hey, there's a sense of conscience like check my intentions. So I you know so that's what gives us a sense of hiriotopa, moral conscience and concern, and also a sense of empathy. The nervy tremble turns into resonance. May she be. She, like me, is subject to distortions, perceptions, sensitivities, feeling hurt, feeling left out. You know, just like me. Let's be really respectful and careful and negotiate how we meet so that we can move through this area. This is where I think proper, not a hindrance, but just it's appropriate. And I think we can do a lot of mistakes by just rushing into other people too fast without negotiating contact. So one should keep that sense of other alive in a healthy way. In a way, this is other than my perception of them. Uh, but it doesn't mean there's nobody there. And... Uh, so I can learn something. It's a question here about independence. So it kind of flows on, I suppose. Independence and dependence. You've spoken on the reality of our dependence, socially, environmentally, existentially, 
and in terms of dhamma, dependent, co-arising, and um, so on. We've also spoken of the unskillful myth of independence, which is um, isolationism and, and conceit, uh, as well as of the unhealthy, unskillful dependence associated with clinging to aggregates. Can you offer some reflections on skillful independence? For example, the refrain of Satipatthana Sutta, one abides independently, clinging to nothing in this world. Uh, or perhaps other instances, be an island unto oneself. Or the aggregates as a pleasant abiding when free from clinging. So, yeah. Mm. Well, dependence is just the structure of, of, of experience is dependently arising. And it's never one thing, it's always a mixture. The I, as these vipassana factors point out, the I plus a, plus a visual object. Therefore, you know, consciousness, contact arises dependently. It has to be an intention to move attention to it. So. Experience only happens because one gives it attention and forms. So, so all these mental factors weave and fabricate the data that we experience. So all, da- all data are dependently, codependently arising. The principle of itapachyata. So, uh, so this is not the same as the dependent origination chant. This is just the nature of existence is comes through factors mutually co-merging is that relatively clear so so the usefulness uh, of that dependence is that when experience happens you say what what are the factors that are in that it's not just the single separate entity arose dependent upon a cause. Um, and therefore, one can begin to look at the causes that bring it into focus or make it poignant, make it uh, painful. And because of resistance or because of craving or because of this factor, and then releasing that factor. So then the factor of sati is, is applied or the factor of wisdom is applied. When that is put into the mix, unskillful factors fall away and a skillful factor rises. So this is the dependent process. And uh, that's, that's the way that liberation is um, mapped in terms of the, co- of the dependent origination is the arising of suffering and the ending of it through um, removing ignorance with and replacing it with clarity with seeing with wisdom so and that 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 nexus occurs skillful independence means that uh, uh, one is for example what's called kaya viveka which means you step out of the mainstream of, of the social world it's called bodily seclusion or withdrawal it means you just get yourself out <laughs> of the of the autom- automatic f- flood 
you step back. So this is independent from um, you know social um, pressure, obligations. Um, you you so that so that you, you you step back so that you can be more clear about what you're really dealing with. You you limit uh, the, the the focus, and then clearly you for the social world and even the sensory world which we assume and we take as the reality uh, and the one and only reality the real world we call it (laughs) Uh, uh, has not just objective phenomena but also huge um psychological programs and effects, pressure to achieve, uh, emphasis on physical appearance, um, emphasis on winning and competing, emphasis on intelligence being up in the brain through thought is the intelligence. Nothing else is intelligent except for thought. And so various layer after layer of conditioning uh, that becomes the world, and I don't just mean on the physical level, the psychological world. So you cultures build up world views, you know, and, um, and biases. And so t- typically the world view now is very more, much more associated with virtual reality rather than actual sensory reality, conceptual reality, and, and that's called intelligence. So the intelligence of the body is dismissed Intelligence of the heart is seen as secondary and rather obtrusive because it makes you less efficient. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and th- these are various programs that wants to be independent from <laughs> in order to come to one's senses. <laughs> you know, to be just just constantly dependent upon one particular. As, you know, one particular conglomerate of experience that is massively um, um, out of sync, even with one's own body on the physical level, and certainly with one's own emotional or psychological well-being, and to be trying to keep in step with that is bound to be disastrous, calamitous, painful, or at least take a lot of management. So. We strive to be independent of that, step out of it. And uh, also out of the endless uh, um, clamor and pain of it all. It's always problematic. You know, and you get, now you get global news, just dial a disaster, you know, let's have a look. Well, Philippines is probably a disaster. Let's have a look. Myanmar must be a disaster somewhere. Let's report about it. So it's just constant disasters and, and because that's what makes the headlines. Nobody says, you know, Mr. Lee in Yunnan had a great day today. It's always somebody fell down a pit or an earthquake opened is what gets the, gets the headlines. So, you, you know, it's all the grief and the pain of it all. So one is advised to step out and um, be independent both of the pressures and the saturation effects. Um, probably more important is the is the pressurized 
um, drives that um, establish there, and particularly the focus on this sensory reality as being it. Well, the only place you could ever achieve fulfillment is on this level, and it doesn't happen. So, I mean, when I get fixated on that, then if you doesn't really take too much, I would say, to recognize, well, actually, there's another reality which is my domain of friendliness, goodwill, harmlessness. I want to live there. You know, that's another. Now you can, that's another plane, you might say. And in in, in Buddha Dharma, you've got many different straight strata of experience to move through. Of course, one of the fundamental um, qualities of the world is the world is that which becomes, takes up, occupies, becomes, is moving forward in time, is becoming something. So as one clings to that or is fixated upon it, one becomes something in terms of that world. You become, if you're modelled by the world, uh, which uh, that world that I've described, you become that. That shapes you. You become a successful one of these or an unsuccessful one of these. One of the things that the world has decided is it's important. Well, they're not important, <laughs> really, in terms of value. So the world, sh- you get shaped by it. And the the urgency is you have to shape the world or the world will shape you. You have to decide where you're going, what's important. Otherwise, it will be the decision we made for you. <laughs> no, guaranteed. <laughs> if you don't steer your raft, the tide will catch you. That's for sure. Guaranteed. And it's a very big tide. This is what we need to be independent from. How do we do that? Well... You meditate for sure, and um, you have values that you stand by. Um, you have Kalyanamita, so you have some sense of, you know, I've got people I can check in with and get some feedback from and check out how, you know, rather than be valued in real terms, in significant terms, rather than in worldly terms. So then being dependent upon those is a skillful way to be independent of the world. This is how we become a refuge for ourselves because these true values become so established that, you know, the world doesn't catch us. And, of course, the big uh, freedom is, of course, the world believes in death. The world that we notice with our senses is a death world. We all recognize that happening right now, somebody is dying. Not just people, but animals, everything is death. It's a death world. So we really believe in that and establish that. But it's possible for those who realize there's a deathless, there's also a deathless quality. Dhatu it's called, property. So that's just like one can switch from seeing into uh, generosity, right? You know, you can do either of those. You could look at something or you could feel the experience of generosity. Those are slightly different qualities, aren't they? 
different ways of experiencing things. Right? They're not, you don't have generosity happening in the eyes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so and so that you so that and one can reflect upon and live in and abide in and consider that quality. Then you you steer yourself in accordance with that. It's just this humble example. And so, when we are very much looking towards realization, then we're starting to what do I need to be in de- more deeply what do I need to be independent from not just the social pressure but this habitual karmic pressure I cr- that is created internally the pressure that is established when I sit on my own the pressure that my that something happened in my mind saying you should you should you couldn't you aren't you you know I need to become independent of that the kaya chitta viveka the, the chitta stepping back from these habitual fixations and perceptions. One to be independent, that's a very, that's skillful independence. And it takes work to know what we get fixated on, what chains us, what ties us, what drives us. And then upadi viveka is the ability to step back from these deep-rooted blueprints of selfhood, the need to be a thing, to have a boundary, you know. But for, you know, this is deep stuff. Mm. So in, uh, uh, in cultivating independence, we look towards dependently arising factors that will help support that cultivation. I think I'll take just a couple more. Talk about releasing blocked energy. How does one even recognize this blocked energy to be released? Well, start with, (laughs) you know, start with your body. And uh, you start with sitting or standing in your body. And uh, how comfortable is that? And how, what about breathing now? How comfortable is that? How fluent is that? Something that is just so involuntary, so much a given, it should be just totally easy, totally comfortable. How comfortable and easy is that? <laughs> uh, if it's not, what's what's happening? It could be you're thinking a lot, but why are you thinking so much? Why don't you just relax and go into your, to that rather pleasant, agreeable, rhythmic, comfortable experience? Because it's not comfortable. <laughs> Why is it not comfortable? Yeah. There's certain pressures. Um, and so, and if you stand, it's simply like standing, you can sense if you've got a shift because things are not comfortable. You've got, you've got to keep shifting. And why? Because no, there's nothing, there's no pain in the floor. Floor is fine, you know. Nobody's beating you. What's the discomfort? Oh, I feel kind of yeah. because 
you know, something isn't allowing your body just to stand and relax. Something is is twisted or distorted or... So just the, even in terms of the body, you begin to notice something we may have become so used to that we assume that's, that's natural, that maybe you, you feel, if you explore the sense of being a body motion, you might feel, well, if I was to say, you know, what's the most dominant feature, it's this experience up at the top of it called the head. This is where I live. And that's where we all agree we live. That's where we are. And down below, hands get pretty active. The rest of it, something there. But unless it hurts, I don't really experience it very much. Mm-hmm. Well, that's called blocked energy. Because every aspect, every tissue, every cell is sensitive. There's no reason why the cell in the finger should be any less sensitive than the cells on the skin in your belly, same same material. Still blood and nerves, still something breathing through it, keeping it going. It's still part of an energetic revitalizing system. Why don't you feel it? Hmm? Blocked energy. Something's blocked. Something's numbed. Something's closed. Hmm? And uh, again, this may be something that become normalized around. Rigidity of, of movement. Something's not flowing. And we may have normalized that. Uh, energy that's very erratic, slumping and then hyper. Sitting there and just slumping. You know, well, you just, you know, sleep. No, it's something else, blocked energy it's called. You sit and meditate and suddenly the right side of your body's beaming with light and the left side's just blank, blocked energy. So we even just we survey the body and we experience this these um, irregularities, discomforts, lack of vitality, unbalanced vitality. Um, all signs that the vitality system is somehow compressed, not flowing universally over the whole form. And that's a that's a sign. That's how you recognise it, and you might recognise also the uh, if you're with it, you might notice how the, the mind. Uh, you know, places it, it just moves away from. <laughs> or doesn't experience anything. So there can be any mental blocks as well. How are they released? Well, because we're not dead yet. So you come to the places that are alive and you can feel. And... Um, you won't find the ones that are still are more comfortable, more fluid. I don't mean comfortable necessarily, you know, deeply blissful, but just easy, alive, easily fluid. They have the qualities of mobility, fluid energy. They're, they're not compressed. And you may find one or two places, depending on your body, 
palms of your hands, soles of your feet, bottom, you know, somewhere in your breathing pattern where it feels, yeah, that's, and you focus on that till that becomes clear, fully felt, and you check it out, the chitta feels comfortable here, it may not seem that significant, you know, but even your palm of your hand feels relaxed and easy and vibrant, that's good. So you, you, once you forget about the anatomy, just look for energy points where it feels more open, more free, more vibrant. You go there. It doesn't matter where it is, really. Because that's just the, another mental definition. You go to that place, give it attention, rest in it, listen to it, let it come into you, open to it. It will, it will be increased. It will amplify so this becomes then a, a resource. That's your little uh, bank of, of good energy. And then so from there you then start to widen your attention to include places that are less nourished. And just by bringing the two together in the same field of awareness and relaxing and developing a mind of acceptance and goodwill, no pressure, there's no volition in this. It's not volitional. You don't push things from one place to another. You just widen attention. And if there's any volition, I say there's no volition, there's no push, but there's maybe the, just this gentle volition of be well, be accepting, listen. You know, it's a subtle inclination. So it's not just a blank regard, it's a, a sympathy. And you know, if you can't get that, then just stay with just being aware of it and contemplate where's the edge of the good quality or where does the the less happy quality, where's the edge of that? Where's there? And that's where it starts to become more vibrant. You go to the edge and you start to say, well, what's beyond the edge? So the edge of the difficult experience and what's beyond that? It's like that. And just stay at those boundary places you may drop back into the good place again refresh and go back to the boundary and widening your awareness over that hold two in one focus and let yourself linger and breathe and feel at ease with that with that slight imbalance um, by no by applying no pressure but including there's a, the invitation for the energy to start to trickle through into the um, less or the, uh, less fruitful place. Um, but it's not not entirely as logical as one would assume. It could be that in in focusing like that, you know, you, you you sense an emotion or a psychological attitude. Oh. And why don't, why don't I really relax that? Oh. And then things shift. So it's very holistic. It doesn't, the energy doesn't always move directly through the body. It can come through one's mind. You realize your mind is just too tight, too intense, too pushy, 
too cramped, too agitated. And if you could just bear with, and you see that, then that the body tells you that. So if you just open and stop pushing it, oh, and then it will shift. So to just to bear this in mind, uh, in my experience, it's pretty holistic body-mind, and it, the release could be on the emotional, psychological level, which is great, because that's, that's the most important thing at the end of the day. So this is not just an exercise like in, in uh, physiology. How can I get my shoulder more comfortable? That's not a bad place to start from, but that's not really what it's about. It's in apprehending the uncomfortable recognizing the place where you, where you, you feel resource so you're not stressing against it widening and then check use it to feed back into you know what's happening in my chitta what effect is that these are all dependently co-arising mental and bodily factors at the energetic level are very fluent they're very transmutable Mental energy becomes bodily experience. Bodily experience, you know, contributes to mental experience. So we keep a very wide focus as to what factors are established in this particular experience. And it might be sorrow. And it might be anger. And it might be things we have no words for. But when you hold your open awareness, something in you somewhere... Oh, oh! You might suddenly experience uh, something or more on a psychological or emotional state, and it can be the other way round. It could be that when your heart opens, bodily starts to relax. So these blockages at an energetic level transcend the body-mind dichotomy. That's why it's conducive to not just the bodily comfort, but also to to um, release of chitta. I did say two, didn't I? Okay, I'll just do this last one. Um, aware of the Vedana of pleasure when I'm eating and the contraction around that energy which intensifies the pleasure. I shift the attention away from the Vedana of taste and focus on the form, the munching, the textures as everything gets chewed up, the whole physical process and the Vedana becomes somewhat unpleasant. Eating is just something to get through. I change the perceptual filter, I can be back with the pleasant. I sense that as a, quote, good Buddhist, I should be making use of the just, this this is just form perception. But the jitta protests. Why should you be deprived of the pleasure? <laughs> I think it feels like it's being punished. <laughs> well, you know, I guess if you had have children, it's the same process. <laughs> you know, it's not good to eat three pounds of candies even though they taste good. <laughs> uh. Yeah, chewing is, if you focus on chewing when you eat your food, it really is 
really a tedious process. It really is pretty, and squirting it, and just gulp, pushing it down your throat. You wouldn't do it if it didn't taste good, that's for sure. <laughs> so there are various features, both the flavor and also the sense of being filled and gratified. It's an easy, easy one to do. And the psychologies behind it are most um, probably more significant than just the feet that taste Vedana, the Vedana that rises from the taste, the psychologies around, I'm getting mine, I can have mine, I can be filled with what I want. And so it's something to, to, to look into, contemplate. And if you're finding your feel-good factor comes from contentment and meditation, then you're not so hungry in many respects. And relieving oneself of the unnecessary hassle of anticipation, expectation, cooking, preparation, chewing, brief flash of pleasure, then into the washing up. (laughs) Okay, that's enough. Thank you for your questions.